On September 8, 2023, at 11.11 p.m. local time, a 6.8 magnitude earthquake struck Morocco, the country on the far northwest edge of Africa. The earthquake was centered in the Atlas Mountains, around 50 miles, or 75 kilometers, southwest of the city of Marrakesh. Unfortunately, the earthquake caused widespread building failure in Moroccan villages and noticeable damage in parts of Marrakesh. Morocco's Interior Ministry listed the total number of fatalities from this catastrophe at 2,901 lives. U.S. News and World Report list the number of fatalities at 2,946, making it the third most deadly natural disaster in the world last year. Only the massive floods in Libya, which was number two, and the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, which was number one, were more deadly natural disasters. I visited Morocco, Spain, and Portugal last December to learn more about the impacts of natural disasters in this region and what people are doing to reduce losses from these events. I spent time at the heart of the earthquake zone where I documented damage, interacted with earthquake survivors, and learned a lot about the complex path to recovery for victims in this catastrophe. This podcast tells the story of the journey I took and helps connect you with the beautiful and resilient people who are doing their best to overcome one of the deadliest disasters in the world last year. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to thank you for coming on this journey with me to Morocco. The GeoTrek podcast explores the world, investigating stories about extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. We go deep on these stories to understand more about the physical processes that create these events, their impacts on society, and what we can do to get out ahead of such extreme events to reduce the loss of life and property. The cost of this podcast episode is free, but we do ask that you subscribe to the GeoTrek podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which makes it easier for us to form professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more great episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Well, without further introduction, let's come along with me on this journey to exotic Morocco, where we take a deep look into the impacts of the earthquake from September 8th, 2023. I would like to tell the story of how I ended up in an earthquake tent community in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. I was coming in from the Sahara Desert to the south where I had spent some days documenting how Moroccans live in one of the harshest environments on the planet. Up to this point, I had traveled around Morocco by bus, taxi, train, motorcycle, and even on a camel. I had also walked a lot. The towns and the desert oasises in the Sahara were set up for tourism, however, and I could eat at restaurants, stay in hotels, or other accommodations, but I knew this would be a challenge when it came to the Atlas Mountains. The population in the area resides in scattered small villages, many of which have no restaurants or hotels. On top of this, most of the villages in this region endured catastrophic earthquake damage. So while I was interested to spend some time in one of these villages, I didn't really know how to plan this and how to work it out. I got into a Grand Taxi. This is a large vehicle that sits at least six passengers in a town called Teradown. From there, I ventured to the north. I noticed at the crest of the Atlas Mountains, there was advertised online that they had repaired a hotel from the earthquake damage and it was now open. So my plan was to take this Grand Taxi up to near the crest of the Atlas Mountains, a place called Teasy and Test, And I would find this hotel, hopefully stay there, and from there use it as a base camp to venture out into some of these villages. So I bought a ticket in the Grand Taxi and told the driver that I wanted to go to TZ in Test at the crest of the Atlas Mountains. 
Well, as we were driving along and we were climbing the, the mountains, approaching the crest, I noticed many tent villages that had popped up. This was the first indication of widespread earthquake damage. So typically these people live in more like adobe style earthen homes and where a lot of these had collapsed under the stress of the earthquake, tent villages had popped up. This was the first indication, really, of, first, of widespread earthquake damage, and I was crammed in the back of a grand taxi that did not have a window seat, so I was kind of in the middle. It was hard for me to get photos, but I could kind of try to turn my neck and see what was going on outside the window. So up, up, up we went, up the crest of the Atlas Mountains. Near the top of the mountains, I saw that the hotel that was advertised online was there, but it looked empty. We actually drove right past it, and I thought that the other passengers in the Grand Taxi were also going to TZ and Test, so I figured there must be a drop-off point right up ahead. But unfortunately for me, we kept going on these windy mountain roads, leaving the crest of the mountains and this hotel behind us. After about 10 minutes past the crest, I started wondering where actually we were going. Weren't we all going to TZ and Test? I wondered about that and wondered where the other passengers were going, so I started talking to them in a language called Dereja. So most of the passengers in this Grand Taxi speak Berber or Tashalheet as a first language, but you, you, most of them speak a language called Dereja or Moroccan Arabic as a second language. I was able to communicate with them because I had lived in Morocco for several years in the late 90s and early 2000s, where I studied a lot of French and Dereja or Moroccan Arabic. And so I was able to start speaking to them and asking them if they were going to Marrakesh or somewhere else, where are we going for our final destination? Well, when I asked a few of them if they're going to Marrakesh, they replied no, but word started traveling as they were wondering about this curious guy in the back. And I started hearing people kind of murmur, I think the guy in the back is going to Marrakesh. So finally, after about 25 minutes of navigating windy mountain roads, we got off the pavement and turned onto a gravel road. I saw a tent village came to view. I didn't know where we were, but I resolved I was going to get out of the taxi wherever we were and really see what's going on in this village. Again, I wanted to document earthquake damage. I wanted to see what's going on with the people. I did not want to end up in the big city north of us, Marrakesh, so I just wanted to get out in some village somewhere, and we pulled off in on this gravel road alongside this village that was badly damaged by the earthquake. When I got out of the taxi, the other passengers yelled at me, stop, we're not in Marrakesh yet. The driver and a female passenger also got out. This was her final destination. The driver of the taxi told me, this isn't your stop. We're not yet in Marrakesh. So I confirmed to them I wasn't trying to go to Marrakesh. I was just trying to go to some village somewhere. It was a little hard to communicate that. But the woman actually said, why are you stopping here in this small village? It's a very small village. We don't have any restaurants. We don't have any hotels. This is not really a place for tourists. So I did my best to explain in Derija. I said, So I told them, I'm going to Marrakesh tomorrow. Today, I want to see the earthquake. So that's about as well as I can do in the language Derija. I can make myself understood. I know my language is a little bit coarse and not as descriptive as I would like. You know, like, for example, I did not even know the word for damage. In Derija, so I just told them I want to see the earthquake. It was the best I could do, and I think I made myself understood. The woman that got out of the taxi seemed sharp intellectually. She understood right away what I meant, and she said, Follow me. So I picked up one of her heavier bags that she was bringing in from Terada, the bigger city to the south, and followed her to a gate that she was able to open with a key. She introduced herself as Hafida. 
and told me I was now in the small village of Asul, Morocco. So really interesting. I walked through this gate, did not know what to expect. Hafida introduced me to her family and invited me in for a late morning meal and a tea. We tried our best to communicate with each other using a mix of Derija and French. And along the way, she explained her earthquake story. It was a complex narrative filled with life-saving good fortune mixed with heartbreaking loss. Peace be upon you. I'm Hafida from Morocco. Here we're in a small village called Asul, near Marrakech. There was an earthquake here. Afterwards, everybody here is just so cold. There are no houses anymore. The children, everybody is impacted by this. Here's what I know about this. In the village of Asul, I'm here and my children are far from me. My house is completely gone. I stay here alone in a tent. Hafida then explained the story to me of what happened on the night of the earthquake. I was staying here with my daughter. I wanted to enter the house. And there was an earthquake right at that moment. So I left the house and I was standing right outside the door, ready to open the door. I had the key in the door, was just ready to open it. And the earthquake hit. Bang, 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 bang. I asked if her house was in, if her daughter was inside the house. She said no, she had left. She and her daughter were just outside. I asked if her daughter was inside. She said, no, my daughter was outside with me. When the earthquake hit, everybody was crying and yelling. They stay intense because all the buildings are gone. My house is gone, the lights were gone, the network of telephones, all the cell phone network, everything was down. You couldn't see anything. Everybody was crying. All the houses are gone. Did the telephone work or not? She said no. The telephone did not work. The whole network was down. I asked if it was during the evening. She said it was at night. It was at night. Around 11 o'clock at night, the earthquake hit. Wow. 
You couldn't see anything. Leila, you couldn't see anything. It was completely dark. I was with my daughter. My daughter was crying. All the children of the village were crying. The women of the village were crying. Everybody was crying. It was too much. I'm happy that you were not inside your house. Yes, everyone said... All the women, all the people in the village, everybody was in the house, but me, no, I wasn't inside my house. I don't know why. I left the house with my daughter just for a moment. Praise God. Because there were wounded people and dead people. I told my daughter, just come outside with me. Just come outside for a moment. Come outside the, come outside the house. And my daughter said, no, I want to stay inside and sleep. And just when they got outside the earthquake, I left outside with my daughter. And right after we stepped outside, boom, the earthquake my house, the whole village, everything was gone. After the telephones were cut, everyone was crying. Hafida and her daughter were truly fortunate that they were outside their home when the earthquake struck. Because it was late at night, most people were inside their homes. She took me inside her home and showed me the spot where her daughter was lying down in bed just two minutes before the earthquake struck. The wall next to her bed partially collapsed. Had the earthquake hit just two minutes earlier, her daughter would have been badly injured. However, if the earthquake hit 15 seconds later, they both would have been injured by falling debris in their hallway as they were just getting ready to re-enter their home. So basically, they were just outside for two minutes, and that's exactly when the earthquake struck. Very fortunate for Hafida and her daughter. All earthquakes are unexpected, but this one especially blindsided the residents of Morocco's Atlas Mountains because strong earthquakes are quite unusual in this part of the world. Melon, Granados, and Ledor published an article in the Washington Post on September 11, 2023, just three days after the earthquake struck, providing some context for this quake. The article states, according to data from the United States Geological Survey, earthquakes in the magnitude 6 range are more common in the northern part of Morocco near the Mediterranean Sea. The 6.8 magnitude quake that occurred in the country's high Atlas Mountains region late Friday was the largest recorded in that area in more than a century. End of quote. In an article in the Seismic Record, a journal of the Seismological Society of America, Yek et al. 2023 state that the background seismicity in the region is low, with only nine magnitude five and larger earthquakes having occurred within 500 kilometers or around 320 miles of this event since 1900. So again, in this area, if you do a bullseye, 
320 miles in, in all directions. Basically, there were only nine magnitude five or higher earthquakes in this area since 1900. So again, a 6.8 in this area, pretty rare. At this point, let's zoom out a bit to better understand the geography of tectonic activity in this region. I was able to pull some insights from Aurelien Bosolet, a geophysicist expert in seismic hazards, who wrote an article on the topic for AXA Climate. That's A-X-A Climate. These are not direct quotes, but this is information I'm taking from a post that he did in October, just one month after the Morocco earthquake. So from looking at this, from what I saw, considering plate tectonics, Morocco is located near the boundary between the African and Eurasian plates, which are converging at an average speed of between four and six millimeters annually. However, the earthquake from September 2023 occurred several hundred miles and kilometers to the south of this plate boundary in an area where we do find tectonic faults, but the deformation rate is a lot slower, only about one millimeter per year. So this means in general that it takes more time to build up to get large earthquakes in places like the High Atlas Mountains of Morocco than it would near the convergence of the African and Eurasian plate close to the Strait of Gibraltar, really near the border there of Morocco and Spain and not far from Portugal as well. Keep in mind, though, when we think about earthquake impacts, it depends a lot more than just the magnitude of a quake. So what we're seeing here from a lot of the science, it's saying that northern Morocco, southern Spain, Portugal, these areas would more likely see large earthquakes, but it doesn't mean we couldn't see a large impactful earthquake in central or southern Morocco, for example. And, um, you know, something that I, I saw when I was looking through the literature as well is that it's more than just the magnitude of an earthquake that makes it have a big impact. Proximity to large population centers should also be considered. So, for example, the earthquake that struck Morocco in 1960 was the deadliest modern-day natural disaster in Morocco's history, even though the magnitude of that earthquake was lower than the more recent one in September 2023. So the one back in 1960 struck with a magnitude of 5.9, but unfortunately, its epicenter was very close to the fairly large city of Agadir, enabling it, the earthquake from 1960, to inflict between 12 and 15,000 fatalities. So this is really considered the most deadly modern-day disaster in Morocco's history, this 1960 Agadir earthquake, and that also was located considerable distance from the boundary between the African and Eurasian plate. So again, you don't have to be right on a plate boundary to get an impactful earthquake. Another factor to be considered when discussing earthquake impacts relates, relates to the type of building construction. So I was reading that Washington Post article before, and, you know, it was interesting. That article also references insights from Jesus Halindo Zal. Zaldivar, a professor of geodynamics at the University of Granada in Spain. And the article states, and I'll quote, he noted that in Marrakesh, Friday's earthquake had leveled many of the city's older buildings while newer construction sta stayed standing. And I thought that was interesting. This was a common perspective I heard on my trip, especially among professionals that I spoke to in the region about earthquake impacts. There were two scientists that I visited in Spain during my trip who supported the notion that more modern building practices could help reduce the loss of life and property during future Moroccan earthquakes. And so this is interesting. Again, the concept, build better, better building codes, better practices, more modern building, you're going to reduce the impacts of earthquakes. That's generally what I was hearing from scientists that I met in the region, especially in Southern Europe. 
So when I got back into Morocco on the ground, I was curious to get feedback from Moroccans that live in these areas impacted by earthquakes on this topic. So, you know, I I was really interested to learn, okay, do you agree with that? Do you agree that there should be maybe a modernization of building practices or not? What I learned from spending time on the ground and talking to Moroccans is that this topic is much more complex than I initially realized. So I spent an afternoon with a man named Salah, who knew a lot about building practices in southern Morocco. We discussed the pros and cons of building in traditional methods, which construct earthen style buildings that look more like adobe kind of buildings in the U.S. Southwest versus building with more quote-unquote modern methods that use concrete and cement. And here's a little excerpt from our conversation on considering building as far as protection from earthquakes and also other things to be considered as well. There were people that were living with their parents in the old Kasbah, and they were building houses with new methods using cement. But they found the old methods of building like the Kasbah are better. With the cement, the winter's really cold and the summer's really hot inside. But the old ways of building are not really with the cement. It's more traditional using earthen methods. And they'll actually use like palm wood for the ceiling. The old ways of their grandparents and their parents are more effective. The old ways protect against the heat, but the new ways of using cement don't protect in the same way. I was discussing with Salah the traditional building methods in Morocco where they often use earthen materials to build a style of wall that almost looks like adobe from the U.S. Southwest. It's often very thick, and he was saying they're very efficient at regulating temperature to keep the hot temperatures out in the summer, the cold temperatures out in the winter, and to really regulate the temperatures inside. We were also talking about a term called the Kasbah. So when you travel around North Africa, you often hear about the old cities or the old medinas. You'll also hear about old Kasbahs. Those are the oldest of the old style of buildings, sometimes centuries old. These old Kasbahs are definitely thick earthen walls that have been there for a long time. I continued the conversation with Salah to talk about some of the comparisons between the older style of building and the newer, more modern styles. So I have a question now. People are building in the same way as before or differently? It's changed a lot. It's a question of modernization. For example, to make a house in the old traditional way versus the cement or the brick, there's a difference. The new building in some ways resists earthquakes more. Whereas the old traditional style, it's really sitting on the ground. They're mixing the ground and hay or straw to make the wall stronger. 
They'll also use rocks or stones in the walls to make the wall stronger in the traditional method. Using rocks and stones in the walls will make it stronger in the traditional methods. So in the old style of building, it's not as strong against earthquakes, but it's better for regulating temperature? Yes, exactly. The old style of building considers the cost. With the new style, these concrete blocks, it costs a lot of money. For example, if all the buildings are modern, it costs a lot of money. But this may be the style or the fashion. So you think it's easier to build the modern buildings? Is that more easy than the traditional method? The modern way is more difficult than the traditional way. We can mix the basic materials of earth and hay right there where you're located. And the rocks and stones come right from where you live. Compared with the modern ways, you have a lot of stories, large buildings. You may have multiple stories. It costs a lot of money to do the more modern way. So it's more complicated in the modern way. You have larger buildings with more stories, things like that. The modern way is not as efficient at protecting against heat, is that correct? I don't know the exact statistics. But more than 50% of the buildings built in the world use air conditioning and heat. When you're thinking in economic terms, you need electricity and a lot of expenses with the modern way. I don't know, in three years, if you're using the heat and the air conditioning all the time, it becomes really expensive. Compared with the traditional methods of building, it's less expensive. And now there are a lot of organizations that are returning to the traditional ways of building getting back to ways that are in touch with the environment and ecological. They're returning to traditional houses. So you don't have to spend a lot of money on the heat and the air conditioning. It's not an evolution. I don't talk about the evolution, for example, of the... 
It's not really an evolution of going back. It's the development of, of what you value. Finding solutions to a lot of different problems we have. We need to return to the traditional ways of building. I'm really surprised by people that live in this difficult environment that uh, they have to use climatization. It's not in the same sense. L'état de vie de, de ces gens-là, c'est pas des riches, donc tu vois, peut-être ils n'ont pas la capacité de faire de, de faire un, un, un climatiseur. A lot of people don't have the capacity economically cher, to run the air conditioning and the heater all the time. Le, le coût de l'électricité par jour, the par, cost par of electricity par exemple, is really expensive arriver, every year. Je peux dire 250 jusqu'à 350 euros. C'est trop cher. So it can be 250 or more euros per year for electricity. Maybe close to $300 US. The traditional way of building, you don't have this expense. So it's a lot better. For the health. I can say it's almost like a, something spiritual. And everything is because you're connected to the ground. You're connected to the earth. Getting back to the state of building things traditionally. Thank you, and you're very welcome. Welcome in Morocco. Salah made some good points about the economic cost of building in the modern style. He was saying it costs more money to construct a house using imported materials like concrete and cement compared to the traditional methods that use soil, hay, and rocks close to the location of the house. In addition, the heating and cooling costs are a big factor for many Moroccans as well, as cement and concrete block houses do not regulate extreme temperatures nearly as well as traditional earthen walls. After spending time with Salah in Morocco's Draw Valley, I went out to some big sand dunes in the Sahara by camel caravan. I stayed in a shelter in the desert where I had an interesting discussion with a, name, with a man named Larby, who had insights into the differences between traditional and modern building styles in Morocco. We had this conversation in English. So you're saying that a lot of people are now trying to be more modern. They're building more with cement. But you said this presents some problems in the summertime. What kind of problems do they have? That's normal because all the time when you be against or with the, with the contracts with the nature, you will be in a problem. The people who built in the cement and, and the iron, they want to make something more uh, stronger and more efficient one time. You can and they will not use, they will not renovate all the time. Like the first, the, the old uh, method of construction, they need they need renovation after each rain session uh, to renovate their houses and so on. Second, the, the, the modern one is not, but in the summer they feel so, they, they, they cannot live it inside. Like when you go inside, you will find the same temperature outside is inside of the house. There's no isolation. So you're saying the, the more modern, the cement, it's too hot inside in the summertime. Yeah, it's too hot. It's unbelievable. You cannot live in it. Like in the midday, 
the time of the Moroccan Muslim Moroccan people in the south of Morocco, they wanna get, they wanna make the nap. You will not you cannot you cannot make the nap in that heat because outside is 50, inside you will find the same. So these people with modern house with cement now they need air conditioning and more electricity. It costs them more to to make it cool. Yeah. Yeah, the people who have the modern houses, they, 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 they need all of that. One of the base tent is to, to meet air condition or ventilator, at least to have air condition. And uh, the, the, the method of building is the new one, is the people they look to the space. The more pragmatic to the speed, it doesn't give the space for like the, the hole or something, the area where the air is going is going in. The people they want to divide it to be pieces and they can use it for sleeping and so on. But they need a modern electricity or so, anything else to make them fresh. But it's not a good one. It's not the people nowadays. They know they made the mistakes in the past. They want to be modern in an area which is not need the modernity. They need something natural. Have you heard people talk about building with cement for better protection from earthquakes? I mean, we had, a, unfortunately, a big earthquake a few months ago. Do you think people in some of those areas may say they want to build with cement? Would that be maybe stronger in earthquake, or what do you think? By the way, to be honest, Moroccan people in the past, in their mentality, there is no something they call it earthquakes. They are not used with it. The people who use the modern uh, building, it's only against the rain, especially in this area, because in the past, time to time, it's, I speak about about like like to, uh, like 2000 and down, okay? There is a rain and there is a lot of problem in the wall, in the rooftop, they, they should fix it and so on. That's why they decide, if they have a little bit of money, they decide to build a new, a new, a new houses, modern houses, more stronger. But uh, for the earthquake, the people in that, that, that in their mind that, that, that doesn't care. But uh, one of the reasons behind after the earthquake, there is a lot of modern houses, the building and the damage in the earthquake and there is a lot of casbah. They dam- damage apart, but the rest is, is still, is still exists. That's the difference. Yeah. So it, the, there was, you're saying some damage in the old, like casbah, like in some of the older... Yeah. yeah. In the old Casbah and the old houses, they damage only a part. Mm-hmm. But at the new houses, Homel built by the cement, I see that and I go there and I see the, the most of them, you cannot, the people live inside of them again. You mean it's completely damaged? It's completely damaged. Because with the cement, with the cement and so on, if there's only a problem in the base, in the base of the, of the house, you cannot live in it. But if you have the, the, the tra- 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 traditional building, you can repair it. It's easy to, to also. To renovate it. Well, it yeah. sounds like if one wall is damaged and you have it built from mud and adobe, yeah. you can you can repair that and re- renovate it easier. Yeah, you can renovate the old houses. It's easier and also less cost and money. It's 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 cheaper than than the new one. The new the new houses they are more risky if they they are partly partly damaged. They are. Very I understand. Risky. You maybe have to rebuild the entire thing then for yeah. the new house. Yeah, the most of the people who. I, I see who had damaged by the earthquake, have modern houses, they completely they cannot live in it again because they have a high level of risk than the other, the other houses who build in traditionally. Traditionally, it's easy if you have like a, like a, like a shark in the, in, 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 the, in, in the wall, you can repair it easily and so on. But uh, the, the modern one, you, can dis- you should dis- destroy all of the wall and rebuild it again. Very expensive to rebuild the new, the modern one. Yeah, the modern one is very expensive because it needs a modern, mo- modern method and iron and cement. Okay, all of these things, they are very expensive now. But the old one, only ground is only beside a few or you can destroy. 
the wall and you can mix the ground again because we see the, the ground is all the time is alive. Only when you put when you put when you add the water in it, we have a wet ground, you can rebuild it again. It's easy. Thank you so much. Larby shared that building with cement block and concrete enables people to build something stronger one time. They do not need to renovate all the time like you have to do with traditional earthen building styles. He was explaining that the traditional style of building requires homeowners to repair the walls, often after a heavy rainstorm. However, concrete and cement houses are very hot in the summer and difficult for locals to live in. He talked about afternoon temperatures that reach 50 degrees Celsius or 122 degrees Fahrenheit outside and mentioned that concrete houses can reach this same temperature on the inside, making it too hot to live in. We discussed the necessity for running air conditioning in cement homes during the summer. Larby shared that Moroccan people are not used to earthquakes and are not really building to resist the ground shaking. When people think about building more durable buildings, they are considering a building that does not have to be repaired after a heavy rain. So this makes modern style of concrete block more appealing, you could say. But he did mention that it's easier to repair earthquake damage on earthen buildings that are more traditional compared to the cement block houses. A modern style house has to be abandoned if it has a cracked wall, whereas it's actually easier to repair an earthen wall that's been damaged. Larby was mentioning about traditional methods that are easy to fix because you can actually take down one wall and mix the ground again, quickly making a new wall in its place. He concluded by saying that we see the, gr- the ground all the time is alive. I thought that was a very interesting quote from Larby. Larby's quote that the ground is actually alive has this viewpoint that really has a deeper cultural perspective that many Moroccans have about the relationship between themselves and the environment. So many Moroccans, especially in the mountains and in the south, like in the Sahara Desert region, try to live closely in harmony with nature and live in natural ways. They prefer to build a traditional way that naturally regulates the extreme air temperatures while enabling them to be good stewards of limited resources. And I I talk about central and southern Morocco like this. I'm contrasting the urban north. Once you get along the coastal plain in places like Casablanca and Rabat, uh, these are places I live for several years, I've noticed it's definitely a more urban mentality. I noticed in the central and southern part of Morocco, in the mountains and in the desert, people tend to have a little more, in general, connection with nature. I am generalizing there, but I notice it's maybe that rural to urban interface that we see in other countries as well. In a future episode, I'll share some amazing insights I gained about additional ways Moroccans have adapted to survive in the Sahara Desert with no air conditioning and sometimes no electricity in in temperatures that often exceed 50 degrees Celsius or 122 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. So look for that uh, similar perspective on a future episode here of the GeoTrek podcast. By the way, just a housekeeping thing here and a reflective note, this episode that you're listening to right now turned out quite differently than I expected. I was hoping to interview experts who would talk about the latest science on building better in seismically active zones or the latest advancements in earthquake engineering. Instead, I ended up on the ground in Morocco interviewing several locals who had some deep and interesting perspectives about why Moroccans build the way they do 
while sharing considerations of modern versus traditional styles of building. I feel these conversations gave us better context of the decisions made on the ground and helped me understand some counter arguments against quote unquote outsiders, often Westerners, who question why Moroccans do not build in a more quote unquote modern style that is more resistant of earthquakes. I really feel like I have a much better perspective from spending time on the ground and hearing these arguments about how cost effective and how heat resistant, or I should say, climately friendly, these traditional building styles are. Keep in mind, many Moroccans are battling extreme temperatures, especially extreme heat, every year, uh, for really for several months of the year with limited resources, but they may face a math, massive earthquake like the one that happened last year in the Atlas Mountains less than one time per 100 years in a given location. So this is a bit of a trade-off we see. You know you're going to have tremendously hot weather in the summer, but an earthquake is a bit of a long shot for a lot of these folks, at least when we look back historically. Well, hey, before we close out this podcast, let's go back to Hafida, the woman we met in the little village of Asul, Morocco. Hafida shared her earthquake survival story with us in the beginning, and now we'll close out this episode with some insights about how she, her family, and neighbors are faring in the tent village that they've set up after the earthquake. I lost my house. My house is gone. I'm staying in a tent. I'm sleeping in a tent. And it is so cold. I said the last three nights it was very cold in the tents. Yes, the tent is very cold. Very, very cold. It's always like that. And for everybody, not just for me. Everybody's saying it's cold. The little kids are saying it's cold. That's just how it is. Yesterday, we saw another tent village seven kilometers or about four miles away. Yeah, there are a lot. Here in Asul, near my village, there are a lot of mountains nearby, and everybody's struggling. Everybody's like here, not just us. When the earthquake hit, it affected everybody. Everybody's staying in tents. Hafida mentioned several times how cold it had been for her and the fellow villagers living in the tent community. I wanted to close out this podcast by telling the story of the night I spent with her family in the tent village. So as the sun set there in the Atlas Mountains, it started getting really cold. We went into the tents and I just was spending time with uh, Hafida's family really there and, and a few neighbors stopped by and we were visiting. We were having a lot of fun and talking, but boy, it got so cold. And let me preface that there were several years of my life that I was a winter sports athlete living in Alaska. I've seen a lot of cold weather and this was a different kind of cold. It was different in the sense that I often pictured, and I didn't mean this in a in a flippant kind of way, but when I would see refugee uh, tent communities, things like that, it, it when I pictured tents, I often pictured outdoor adventures and camping excursions that were just like a fun break from the norm. And so I pictured, wow, these people are are having this, you know, this kind of adventure together. It was very different. I'd never spent the night in a tent camp of refugees from a natural disaster. And I'll tell you, it got really cold and it was really sobering and really somber to see 
kids and grandkids and whole families thrown into this extreme environment that they didn't choose. They didn't sign up for, they they didn't sign up for a long camping excursion or something like that. They were just out there thrown into this uh, really situation against their will. It was so cold. You could start to see our breath. We had a very small heat source, but um, mostly we were just sharing all these blankets. And there's one point where I just have every layer I have on me and I have, you know, a, a hat and a a hood and all these different um, sweatshirts and sweaters, and I'm still freezing cold. In fact, at one point, it was around 9.30 in the evening. I was just so cold, I just tried to go to sleep just to escape it. Around 10 o'clock, uh, Hafida and, and her family had brought out this this warm meal. And I have to tell you, these people are so hospitable. It, it was really a tagine, which is like a Moroccan stew or soup with vegetables and spices. Um, as far as meat, there was uh, uh, some chicken, but you know, you're sharing quite a bit and they were trying to push the best food on me that Moroccans are very hospitable and they would give you the last of their food. I mean, they're just so, such hospitable, warm people. So very welcoming, very warming. And, um, you know, I was just sitting there at some points thinking, wow, this is really uncomfortable, but I'm really glad I'm experiencing this because, you know, I'm going to go back soon to my, you know, life, not living in a disaster zone. And these people are going to stay here anyway, experiencing that night, staying in the cold, seeing our breath and knowing that, wow, this was mid-December. And this was just the first of about three months that these people are going to be living in these conditions. It was very sobering. And for me, actually pretty somber and heavy, just because the media often come to these disaster zones for a couple days after the, the disaster. And then they move on covering another natural disaster or a war or a shooting or something else. But these people in disaster zones often got get forgotten. And it's usually the months to years after the disaster that are the really um, trying part for them, even more than the day of the actual event. So anyway, it was a somber thing. My cell phone did not work that well in the village, so I, I wasn't really able to connect with other people. But I remember leaving and just feeling this heaviness of uh, that these people are just suffering. When we woke up in the morning, there was ice on the tent. So you might be saying, hang on a second, were you not in Africa? Yes, I was. If you look at it, the latitude of central Morocco is similar to around South Carolina through, say, central or northern Texas in the U.S. And then they're also at an elevation of around four to 6,000 feet, with mountain peaks around them reaching as high as eleven or 12,000 feet. So this is a mountainous area. It gets cold, sub-freezing many nights in the winter. There'll be snow on the mountain peaks much of the winter as well. And so the, it can get very cold there if you don't have a heat source. Living in tents is not a comfortable thing. Uh, this was difficult for the folks that were living there. So... Anyway, I left Asul, I left uh, Hafida and her family and felt like I made some connections, but boy, my eyes were really open to the long-term suffering that can happen in a disaster zone. As I left, I posted on social media and I shared just some of these heavy, somber accounts. And I'll tell you what, I'm not much of a crier, but I bawled crying uh, the, the day or two after I left, just picturing these kids and grandkids just living in these really um, very, very cold conditions without heat, sor- heat sources, sometimes without electricity, with, with very little to live on, almost no way to bathe in any kind of warm water. I mean, just very, very difficult situations. 
And as I posted on social media, followers of GeoTrek started saying, well, hang on a second. Is there a way that we can help these folks? And this shocked me. It was around December 20th. I just pictured everyone in North America is just focused on Christmas and nobody would, I didn't even think that many people would read these stories. I did a post and I saw the next morning there were like 11 or 12 shares and hundreds of people had seen it, a lot of comments, and people started asking how can we help these people? I was blown away. I did not expect that there'd be that much interest in this story. And there was actually a very simple way to help these people. So when you're in these tents, often you can see in in the photos that the, the tent fabric is moving around. It's very thin. But there's a solution, a local bamboo. It's a Moroccan bamboo that you can build this frame. It's a bamboo frame. It costs 50 US dollars per per tent, per family. And you can build this bamboo frame. From the frame, you can actually hang blankets and insulation and other things to really keep you much warmer. You're actually creating this more of a, a structure that you can hang insulation and, and carpets and, and thick things to keep you warm. And that can keep a family warm for 50 US dollars. So I started sharing about this online. And would you believe that enough money came in just Christmas week to help 22 families stay warm. That's right. $1,100 came in from our listeners. I thank each and every one of you. And I know a lot of those people that made contributions to those gifts in Morocco are not necessarily wealthy people. I know some people that are struggling. What stood out to me about the people that contributed to help out the Moroccan earthquake victims A lot of the people that gave money to that had previously had substantial losses in their own life from a hurricane, an earthquake, or another natural disaster. They knew what it's like to lose everything. And I had one or two people say, hey, even though things are tight for us right now, we have to give 50 or $100 or in some way help these people. And I just felt so blessed by that just to see this take place. We raised $1,100 Christmas week. That's enough to keep 22 families warm there in Morocco through Qasab. It's it's like a, a bamboo frame that you can actually hang insulation on. And instead of having a flapping tent, you can actually have a more substantial structure for just 50 US dollars. So anyway, for that reason, in my top 10 list of the, the past three years of GeoTrack, this came out as the number one story story. Not only were we able to learn a lot about earthquakes, learn about these complex things facing Moroccans on the ground, but these were such warm. And and I have to say, all the people I met that were earthquake survivors, I just saw smiles. That Moroccans tend to be very content people. They live in the moment. They, they're very fun and very engaging and very, very, very communal and relational. And they just invited me in. They treated me like family. And they were just so hospitable to me. I think that's the reason why I cried so much. It was so hard to see such amazingly warm people suffering, not complaining about it. And in a sense, they're very silent. The world doesn't know that they're there suffering. So if you hear this story, if you're moved by it, I think they do still need more help. You can. There are many ways you can contact us at GeoTrek if you would like to give to them. It's still wintertime over there and it stays cold there through April. So if you'd like to help them out in any way, these are very warm, generous people that would give you the last of their food without blinking. And it's just hard to see them struggling. Again, we raised $1,100 Christmas week to help 22 families stay warm there. And, and for me, that was so amazing. I love learning about the science. I love learning about how to make people more resilient. But in a case like this, it was so cool to see the GeoTrek community step up, help out people that are suffering. And that's really what it's all about at the end of the day. Y'all, thanks so much for coming on this international adventure. There were some different languages, some translation, uh, but we had fun traveling to the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. If you ever get a chance to go there, I highly recommend it. You can fly into Casablanca. You could fly in even to Southern Europe and you can take a ferry across the Strait of Gibraltar, end up in Northern Morocco. It's a great, it's an amazing 
amazing, exotic, great country to travel around. The people are warm and friendly, and I know you won't regret it. Everyone, thank you so much for coming on this journey to Morocco. We'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek Podcast.